Good morning. How we doing? Super, because it's Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> uh, who's going to win? Who says Chiefs? Who says Eagles? Eagles by 14. Done. You don't have to watch it now. I get three different times to make three different guesses, so, you know, one of them might be right. We'll see. I want the Chiefs to win, but I don't think so. Well, I just don't. But I've been wrong a lot, so don't put any weight on my... I don't watch much football, so I don't really know. But Eagles by 14, because <laughs> I'll give you my opinion, even if I don't know it. <laughs> Jesus. I'm continually amazed by your balance of grace and truth. Your velvet steel. I want my life to be that same balance, knowing when to give unmerited, undeserved favor and also knowing when to give the cold hard facts, how to balance that well for what that person actually needs in that moment. I pray for us as a community, as we look at the world around us, that always seems to land too far on either side. I pray we be a community, an army, of ambassadors of this kingdom that's full of grace and full of truth. We would be velvet steel as well. I pray as we think and study, I pray that you would speak to each of us individually, that we'd be careful listeners, obedient servants, and that you would be transforming our lives, our families, our neighborhoods, our community through us. We'd partner well with you. So speak. May we listen and obey. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. If you're new, welcome. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in a series. It's called Formed. The goal is real simple. It's the lifelong goal of a believer that Christ might be formed in us. And if you have been following Jesus for any time, you know this. It's a long path, full of ups and downs, right? There are moments where, man, your cup runs over, and then there are times that it feels like you're in the desert. And that's just the way it is. And I think sometimes you can actually see it nationally as well. Like, just look at U.S. history. There's been ups and downs in our pursuit of Jesus as a nation, right? America's discovered, things happen, and there's, there's no Jesus here. And then you have what's called the first great awakening. Spilled over from Europe, comes here, and thousands upon thousands of people are giving their life to Jesus. Amazing. But then guess what? 
we went cold. And there was a second great awakening, right? You know something's off when you have a second great awakening. We didn't wake up for very long, did we? We went right back to sleep. And the second great awakening, they're in New England. You can read accounts of it from Jonathan Edwards, from David Brainerd. They're unbelievable. People would be walking by churches on Sunday morning, just walking by the church, and the Spirit of God would hit them so hard, they would fall on their knees and repent right there and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Like, ha, ah, right? But did it last? Mm-mm. We grew cold again. And then you have in 1907 in LA, the Azusa Street Revival. Revival in Los Angeles, California. What? <laughs> right? New England and LA. What in the world? God is great and powerful. And did it last? Nope. We grew cold again. Went through two world wars. And then this cold war. Man, didn't that cold war shape us? Like me especially, like my generation, it shaped us because we were told in school, hey, be prepared for a nuclear war where we will be bombed and you will be dissolved by nuclear radiation. So to be safe, get underneath your chair. <laughs> what? <laughs> Can I just finish my story problem and then be dissolved? I mean, one misery after another, like it was ridiculous. But in the middle of that Cold War, what happened in our country? This guy named Chuck Smith opened his church up to a bunch of hairy, dirty, barefooted hippies. One of them was my mom. <laughs> yeah. And we have the Jesus movement. When all of a sudden again, man, it's hot again. Where are we at now? Right? Maybe. Have you been seeing Asbury Seminary? Like Google it, not now, but later. What's happening right now, this last week there, something is taking place. It actually spread from that seminary to two other colleges in Ohio just in this past week. Man, my prayer is we're primed for another up, right? That up comes again. Our lives are the same way, right? There's ups where your cup runs over and then there's downs where, man, it feels like the desert, like, ugh. So, we're in this thing called formation where we're looking at these habits or these practices or these disciplines, whatever the name you want to give for them. And what these have such value for is they carry you through the cold times. They carry you through the down times. That's the power of them. When like the psalmist, you're saying, soul, why are you disquieted within me? Like the psalmist, God, you feel so far from me. Like the psalmist, I don't even care anymore. During those times, these things, when it, coming to church is a sacrifice, where praising, giving thanks is a sacrifice because you're not feeling it. Okay, God, today it's a sacrifice. And you're praying, let this just be kindling that I'm stacking around my soul and spirit ignite it so I get hot again. That's what these things are. And so we've looked at Sabbath and slowing and secrecy. And, well, all these things, they're just to, a way that we grow into the life that God graciously has offered to us, that's all they are. That's okay. Because we ultimately want to be the right kind of people who do the right kind of thing with the right motives at the right time in the right way, in the right spirit. That's our goal. And it happens only when Christ is formed in us.
And this is not a contest, and these are not a to-do list, and it's not a bunch of chores. It's a way to free up the promises that God has given to us, especially we're in the down times, okay? So today, you're gonna love what I talk about or you're gonna doubt what I talk about. Like, really, that's one? Because we're gonna talk about the discipline of celebration. Not the discipline of celibacy, celebration, right? And there's like a idea that Christians, can Christians celebrate? Like, really? And part of that is, culture reflects back onto us a view that it has of us. Do you know that culture has a view of us? It was on full display last Sunday at the Grammys. Maybe you saw that. I didn't see it. I just read the articles on the, the performance of Unholy there and the whole thing that they had with it. And they interviewed the two artists. And what I wrote down of that that I found interesting was they said this, that the whole thing, that satanic ritual thing that they did, they said, this was our way of representing religion because we have not felt accepted by religion in America. So we're saying, what they said really was this, this is our new religion, which just fascinates me on a whole bunch of levels. But they also were doing a critique of Christianity, right? We were not accepted by the church. And whenever culture does that, my first thing to do is this, not get mad at culture, but to ask the question, do we deserve that? Did, did we earn that? It's what the disciples said, is it I? And I always do that. Is there a way that the church has not been accepting? And there's a way that you can present the Christian faith and it's like this, God wants these people, name them whatever they, you want to, the accept, the, the elect, the accepted, the beloved, but Satan will take anybody. Oh, okay. Am I guilty? Where am I at? So I always, when culture critiques us, I always say, is it I? But we know this, entertainment is anti-God. And there's always a caricature of church in entertainment. The church is full of you know, cosmic fun haters that are just angry and upset and unaccepting and intolerant. There's all this kind of stuff, right? That's always being presented by entertainment about church. And so we gotta understand that's going to be there. That the only time a Christian celebrates is when they finish reading the book of Deuteronomy. They're like, praise God, I'm done with that book. Yes, celebration. <laughs> and this is not new. Been going on for a long time. So about 70 years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote this because he saw the same thing. It's this quote by Lewis. If there lurks in most modern minds, this is about 1950, modern minds. If there lurks in most modern minds, the notion to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and not a part of the Christian faith. So Lewis saw the same thing, that there's this idea that Christians should be boring and, and stoic and stiff of her lip and not enjoying themselves. He goes, that's not Christianity, that's Kant. If you don't know who Immanuel Kant is, maybe one of the most influential philosophers ever. He's way up there. And he had three axioms by which you, you live life. And to make it real simple, it was duty is king. You have the duty 
to live your life in such a moral way that if every other person lived that way, we would have peace on earth, right? That was one of his axioms. And one of his duties was you gotta tell the truth no matter what. You can never lie. Society is built on truth. So as philosophers do, someone asked him, okay, fine. You always have to tell the truth. Imagine there's a knock on your door. You open the door and standing at the door is an ax murderer with blood dripping off his ax. And he asks you where your children are so he can go kill them. Do you tell that ax murderer the truth? Don't you love philosophers? They always like get you, right? Mm. And so Kant said, yes, you tell them the truth. You tell them exactly where your kids are because it's not my job to be his moral police. It's his job to do it. Silly, right? So Kant was not married, probably a little frustrated, and he never had kids. It's always tough for me to take like advice from people that are not married and don't have kids on how to be do marriage or to raise kids, all right? So the way that I think we start freeing ourselves from these crazy misunderstandings of Kant or the Stoics is we have to understand what it means to celebrate. And when you celebrate right, here's the power it has in your life. It makes sin less attractive. That's its power. It's just like, are you kidding me? I found Treasure Island. Why would I go back to that garbage? Are you kidding me? My life is brilliant and good, exceedingly abundantly above all I could ask or think. Ha, ah, my cup runs over. And it makes sin less attractive. So at Edgewater, we have four pillars. Pillar number one is corporate worship. What we're doing right now, getting together, praying, preaching the Bible, praise, going to the Lord's table, baptism, fellowship. It's a little tiny microcosm of what life is supposed to look like the other six days of the week. Corporate worship, number one. Number two, community groups, that we live out our faith. Faith is personal, but it's never private. And you have about 120 one another's in the New Testament. The only way you do the one another's is to have somebody else, okay? So it's one anothering. Number three, celebration. And we'll talk about that today. And then the fourth one is mission. That God has saved you, not just so you can sit around and do nothing, he saved you for a mission. Ephesians 2.10, that God has prepared good works in advance for every single one of us to walk in and is discovering what is my mission? What am I to be about? That we all have mission. So today we're gonna do celebration. And we're gonna start by looking biblical theology, which is let's look at really God throughout scripture. Because what is God after? Is he a cosmic killjoy? Is it the law? Is it get you? Is that God? Or have we believed the culture's caricature of our heavenly father? And then we're gonna look at Jesus. So if you have your Bible, we'll begin in the beginning. Genesis chapter two. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. How generous is that? Thousands and thousands and thousands are eating of them all. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So God creates a super good spot. Says to Adam and eventually Eve, hey, you guys can eat of every single tree that you want of, the thousands and thousands and thousands of trees. Eat all you want and you're never gonna die. Eat as much as you want and you never die. It's the original Fatkin's diet. Like it's brilliant. Like, wow, God, thank you. Except for there's one bad tree, that's it. Thousands and thousands of good tree. There's one bad tree. Don't eat of it, it'll kill you. Not God saying, I'm gonna kill you. Don't eat of it. The tree is bad, it's poison, it will kill you. In chapter three, where do we find Adam and Eve? Right by the one tree. Thousands of other trees to be near. What tree are they next to? The one tree they were told not to be next to. Now, when I was young, I used to read this and I thought Adam and Eve were foolish. What is wrong with them? And then I had kids. And I realized the way you get kids to do something is you forbid them from doing it. And that's what they'll do, right? We're just like them. And so you know what happens, man? They detonate things. So God had this desire to say, I wanna bless you. I want you to eat to your fill. I want your cup to run over. There's thousands of trees to enjoy. And we detonated it. Good and generous enjoyment. And so does God's plan for us change? I don't think so. Skip forward to this guy named Abraham. God calls Abraham and this is what God says. My purpose in grabbing you and choosing you and everything that I'm gonna do with you, here is my purpose for it. It's Genesis 12 verse three. In you, all the families of earth shall be burdened, bummed, no blessed. And then Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. And God repeats the same thing to Isaac. Genesis 26, 4. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then Isaac has some kids. And through Jacob, God makes this promise to Jacob. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. What is God saying? Same goal for you guys. I know it's been detonated. I know that sin has changed things. I get that. But God's saying, listen, I've got a plan. I want to bless you. And Deuteronomy chapter four, God says to the descendants of Jacob, they're going to be that avenue of blessing. He says, listen, you're to be a model that other nations look at and say, wow, this is what happens when we serve God. We want to serve God too. The blessings that come, we want that. And one of the blessings was this, it's Exodus 23, 14. It's the law. And this is what God says to this nation. That's to be an example for all of us. He says to this nation, three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. God says to his model nation, in the law, it's a commandment. Hey, three times a year, you guys are gonna get together and you're just gonna have a great time. A week-long celebration, feast, it's gonna be brilliant and beautiful. You're gonna enjoy yourself. And it's a command in the law, right? It's God saying, you go enjoy yourself or I'm going to kill you, right? The law, it's amazing to me. We should all have shirts that made up that say this, party or die, signed God. Exodus 23, 14, right? Just to kind of push back on this insanity that God doesn't 
want us to have fun. Now, why is it a command? Why does God say three times commandment? You got to do this. Not you should, you shall three times. Because we'll all make excuses why we can't do it. Ah, I can't go to the feast this year. Bought a new house, got to remodel. Ah, I can't go to the feast this year. And I'm starting a new business. I'm kind of busy. So God has to make it a law because you and I will make excuses not to do it. And then we'll grow very dull because we're not enjoying life. It's a law. And sometimes the nation would actually forget God's desire to bless and bring enjoyment. One of those examples I'll show you is Nehemiah. Listen to this. So Nehemiah's gathered. There's, we're actually going to say the book of Nehemiah next. Brilliant book. So it says this, Nehemiah 8, 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. When you think about a holy day to God, what do you think about? Do you think about like somber, serious, holy? Listen to what it say. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So here's what was happening. They were teaching the Bible. The people heard the Bible taught. And when they heard it, they started just to cry. I think sometimes people believe church is supposed to be like this solemn, somber, holy, respectful time. That it, we're studying the Bible right now. It should be boring. You should not laugh. You should weep, right? There's a way to kind of present it that way. And here's what's happening. That was happening right here. So what did they do? Look at verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Oh, wait, God wants us to be blessed. God wants us to be joyful. God wants us to enjoy. God wants us to celebrate. Oh, great, right? Eat the fat. Drink sweet wine. You know what the Hebrew in that, you know what it is exactly? Briar's natural vanilla. It's exact translation of that from the Hebrew. Go, eat stuff. It's not Brussels sprouts and locust. It's ah, the sweet. It's deep fried ice cream and a Twinkie bar. Okay? I will spoil my kids from time to time. I'm not a sugar guy, but... Time, time, I will spoil my kids with sugar. Why? Nehemiah, it's biblical. I know some parents, like, they spoil their kids with organic kale or something. That's satanic. We'll cure them right now in the kids' wing. Trust me, they're being cured of that. <laughs> Do you see God's heart in this? Listen, I can go to Isaiah. There's so many. Isaiah 25, Isaiah 55, Isaiah 61. Ah, oh, enjoy, Right? It's an idea that's throughout the Bible, and then it culminates in Jesus. So turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 2. 
brilliant on so many levels. We'll look at just one level of this story, the idea of celebration. So what we wanna look at is where Jesus shows up, what he does, when he does it, and why we need to care. Verse one, John chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. You guys know the story. The wine runs out, that whole thing. So where does he show up? At a wedding with some wine. Now, people will argue that it's grape juice. It's not like alcoholic wine. But if you look at verse 10, the governor of the feast is like, hey, normally, you know, people put out the good wine until everyone's drunk. And then you put out the lousy wine because they can't tell. So I don't think you get drunk off grape juice. So something else is happening here, right? So Jesus shows up to a wedding where people are drinking wine. Probably some of them are getting drunk because they run out. Now, I know this. Jesus never got drunk because Ephesians 5.18 tells us to, it's a command, do not be drunk with wine. Sin, right? Jesus goes to a place where people are partying and probably drinking way too much wine. I love that because Jesus engaged culture. He went to their party. He didn't pull away and try to be like, oh, I can't be around those. I might catch the sinnies. No, Jesus got in, went there. And that's important because I think churches go in one of two directions, one good, one bad. The bad one is churches can begin to like almost become a country club because we see culture and we see the bad out there. So we start to like build up these kind of barriers so that culture can't get in. Dress codes and applications and right? And that's really easy and really quick to do because something happens in us when we see sin and see, see its repercussions where we don't wanna be around it. We become Jonah's, if you know his story, where God actually wanted to have compassion on an entire city and what did Jonah say? I don't want to do that. I'm going the other way. Because I know if I preach you, they'll respond and you'll be merciful to them. And I want you to wipe them out and kill them all. And that can start happening in my heart, right? I start driving around town. I start seeing stuff. and I just say, God, wipe them out, man. Just wipe them out. We'd be careful. The other direction is church becomes a hospital. Where we know we're here for one reason, sick people. We're just here for sick people. Like the hospital doesn't say, hey, did you do something stupid, man? Man, you made your bed sleep in it. No, the hospital's like, you're sick, you're wounded, you did something stupid, doesn't matter. We're gonna help you in this moment. And Jesus, I think, commands us to be that hospital. Like he was always being accused of having the wrong friends, was he not? Matthew chapter 11, 18. You're the friend of tax collectors and publicans and drunks and prostitutes, Right? Because Jesus said, my mission is not to the well, but to the sick. May we be accused of the same thing. And may, may I be careful in my own heart of going country clubbish in my own heart. Jesus went to where they're at, a wedding where people were drinking too much wine. Number two, what does he do? Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? I'm not the event planner here. <laughs> My hour has not come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Yes, that is a lot of wine, I'm telling you. <laughs> we're nearing 200 gallons of wine. And they filled them up to the brim. Fill them with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So what does Jesus do? Goes to this wedding, he ran out of wine, and what does he do? He makes more. Why do you think they ran out of wine? They drank it all. It's that simple. They drank it all. It could have been that Jesus was invited and he brought 12 extra fishermen who drank a lot, maybe a little bit too much like fishermen can, right? This amazes me, right? What I would expect Jesus to do is this, lecture them on the dangers of drinking too much. But he doesn't. Maybe grab the admin guy like, dude, what's up with you? Couldn't you plan better than this? Or maybe say, hey, you made your bed, sleep in it. But Jesus does not do any of that. Instead, he makes more wine. He rescues a party that would have been over because there's no way to get more wine. There's no Walmart, there's no Costco, there's no Freddy's. This family would have been saving for their son's wedding party for years, putting aside a skin of wine every year or two every year, waiting for the time to bust them out. That's how big this deal was. And Jesus rescues it by making more wine. Now, when does he do it? Verse 11. This... The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That's a fancy way of saying, this is what I'm all about. Manifest means bring light to. This is my glory. I'm displaying something for you right now that is my character, my core of my character. He manifested his glory. Keep that in your head. And his disciples believed in him. It's the very first miracle he does. There's a saying, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? Because first really matter. My wife, we've had five kids. She has given birth to all five kids naturally. It's unbelievable. Now, I thought I knew about childbirth. I thought I kind of had it down. So when our first, when it was time to go, we had had this discussion about, hey, no epidural. Don't do the epidural thing. You know, you can handle it. You're heavily, come on, gut it up. And then I went in and saw birth. And I went, oh, youch. So number two, when Bella was coming, I was like, less like, well, you know, if you want an epidural, it's up to you. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what to do, right? She's still natural. On the third, I'm like, give me the epidural. <laughs> this is insanity. Because the first just changes. You're like, ah, that is insane. It sets a precedent. The very first miracle Jesus ever does is to make wine at a wedding feast. 
to manifest his glory, to demonstrate this is what I'm about, that I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. I've come, I am God in the flesh, the same God of Genesis 2 that generously gave to Adam and Eve every tree of the garden. The same God of Abraham that says, I wanna bless all nations. Same God of Isaac that says, I wanna bless all nations. Same God of Jacob that says, I wanna bless all nations. Same God of the nation of Israel that says, you are a demonstration of what I want to do. That's why this is so important. It's his first miracle. Celebration, wine, joy, abundance, more than they could possibly drink, 200 gallons of it, okay? So why should we care? 2,000 years ago, wedding, not two hours on a Saturday afternoon. It was seven days in a row. Everyone, the entire crew, would stay in the same house for seven days. And it was the bridegroom's responsibility to bring all the provisions, the feast, the wine, everything was the bridegroom's responsibility. Seven days, one location. Now, there's a lot of things I love that the ancients did. I think they got life probably better than we do, but there's some things that I'm so glad I live in the 21st century. It, I could not imagine getting married and then having the entire wedding crew at my house when I woke up the next morning. Like my father-in-law, had a good last night, son. Please, don't, golly. I'm so glad for our 747 in Hawaii. Thank you, right? Like, how awkward is that? But that's the way they rolled, so... All right, there you have it. In that culture, that seven-day celebration was something this family would be preparing for for years because it was massive. It was your reputation on the line. It was the family name on the line. And there would be nothing more shameful than to run out of wine at your son's wedding feast. Nothing more shameful. That, that family's name, not just that bridegroom and his wife, that family's name would be mud in that town. But instead, what happens? Look at verses nine and 10 again. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the porn wine, but what's the pronoun? You, but you have kept the good wine until now. So the master of the feast, he's the VIP. He's the big name. He's, he's the big dude. He's the main guy in that community. He has respect. He is the mayor. He's the governor, whatever name you want to give him. He is massive, right? And he says this, bro, bridegroom, come here. Man, your party keeps getting better and better and better. This is unbelievable. Who gets all the credit for Jesus' miracle in that town? The bridegroom does. You, right? Jesus took the most shameful, regretful event that could happen to a family, and he changes it not just into a celebration, but a congratulations. Bro, this is the best party I've ever been to. I go to these things all the time. It's my job, right? I'm the toastmaster. I'm the dude. This one's better than any other thing I've ever been to. How amazing is that? It's Jesus saying, listen, I am the author of joy. Nothing is too trivial for me. Jesus doesn't show up at this wedding and they start, hey, we got a problem here. Jesus doesn't say, hey, give me a break, man. I'm not here for your 
wine problems. I'm here to save civilization. I'm here to die for the sins of the world. Are you kidding me? I can't be bothered with that trivial stuff. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus moves in and rescues them from shame and regret and turns it into a congratulation and a surplus. Man, that's the hope we have. That's the hope we have in Jesus all the time. Jesus can always take things that we don't even think are important, but the Bible says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you and can take them. Nothing too small, nothing too insignificant because Jesus is pursuing our joy. Brilliant. So how do we apply this? Here's how you apply celebration to me. Number one, shame, guilt, regret are killjoys. Do you know that? That you will not be celebrating, you will not be enjoying life if you're constantly remembering something that was shameful or regretful, like would have happened at this party. If the enemy loves to do that, he tempts us into sin and blowing it, and then he takes that same sin and makes us shameful and regretful and like, oh. You gotta deal with your shame and regret. Read Psalm 51 if that's you. It's about David's most shameful, regretful act ever, murder and adultery. It's how he processes through it. And he gets to Psalm 51, 12, and he says this, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Right now, I'm, I'm plagued by guilt. I'm plagued by shame. Ugh, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Because what happens when you're full of shame and regret? You, you actually punish yourself. Do you know that? Oh, I'm not worthy to enjoy this. Right, you're not. Neither am I. No sin you have is worse than the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has paid for every sin you and I have done. No one's worthy of that. You just receive grace gracefully. We're all prodigal sons. We're all coming home, prodigal daughters. We're all coming home and saying, I'm not worthy. I just want to be your servant. And what does the heavenly father do? Are you kidding? Get the fatted calf, throw a party, put shoes on his feet, put a robe on him, put a ring on him. My son who was lost is now found. He throws a party for us. Receive grace graciously. Take care of your shame and regret. It's been paid for or you will constantly be sabotaging the enjoyment God has for you. Number two, there's something in worship that helps us celebrate. So throughout the Bible, there's this link between Jesus and joy. Hebrews 2.9, he's anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Jesus was happy. That's why kids liked him. Have you noticed that? Kids don't like unhappy people, right? If you're a grumpy grandpa, they don't like you. Man, that great uncle who's always fun and doing silly stuff, man, they love him. Jesus was glad, anointed glad, gladness above his fellows. Psalm 1611, in his presence is fullness of joy. When we are in ebbs and flows and there's down moments and we're saying, God, you feel far from me. My soul feels disquieted. There's your opportunity to praise. Because if you read those Psalms that start out with disquieted souls and God, you're so far from me, often at the end of that Psalm, what has happened? They're back up because in his presence is fullness of joy. Number three, to celebrate, you need people. If you're having a Super Bowl party and it's just you, not a party, right? It takes people to have a party. So we have community groups, jump in one. 
Perhaps you saw that Harvard study. It was like eight decades long. And they said, the number one predictor that you're going to be happy, you know what it is? People. <laughs> Other people is the number one predictor that you'll be happy when you age because people are in. Keep expanding, right? Keep just saying, hey, Lord, bring people to me. Help me to expand always relationships and people. What if we as a community just started doing this? Like we just said, we're going to be the church that's known for block parties. So we're a community group. Someone's got a house in the middle of a neighborhood. We're going to rent some blow up castles and fun stuff. We're just going to throw a giant block party, barbecue some stuff, and invite all of our neighbors in. How cool would that be? Because you start demonstrating, pushing against a culture that says we're fun haters and say, no way. We celebrate like no one else. We don't need enhancements. We can celebrate because we already have it with Jesus. And you don't have to, in the middle of that party, like teach the book of Romans to your neighbors that don't believe. Just don't do that. Or your unbelieving neighbor that comes over is like, bro, why are you doing this? This is so much fun. Well, I want to have fun with you before you burn in hell. That's why we're doing it. Like none of that. That's not helpful. <laughs> There'll be other time for that, not the block party. And I think lastly, you got to plan in celebration. That's why God makes it a law. Exodus 23, 14. I'm going to make you plan in these three times throughout the year where you get and you celebrate. Because here's, I love work. No doubt about it. And whatever I'm doing, man, it's just, I enjoy doing stuff. So I can put my head down and years can pass. I'm like, whoa, what happened? My kids are growing up and they're gone. So it's very important if you're like me to say, I better put on my calendar. I better in January, look at my calendar, start talking to my, hey, when are we going to have fun? When are we going to celebrate? Where are we going to go? You plan it in. And here's what happens. And we got tons of ways to do it here. There's family camps coming up. Get in on one of those. Soapbox dirty, come here. A picnic in the park. We try to provide opportunity to meet people, celebrate, enjoy it. And here's what happens. When you celebrate as a Christian, sin becomes less and less attractive because you realize, I got the real thing. That stuff is shadows. Remember those pictures I showed you? That's shadow art. It's just garbage. Man, I've got the real thing. I found Treasure Island. No one has it better than us. And when we do that, we dissolve the caricature that Hollywood has of us. Wow, there are people that have a great time. They celebrate, they know how, right? Listen to this last one before we take communion. It's Paul just mixing metaphors like only Paul can. He talks about the cross, and then in talking about the cross, he talks about partying. It's 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven. Some of us had these preconceived ideas about God. And good theology cleanses out those ideas. You may be new lumps as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Brutal. Very next sentence. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Paul knew something about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No one has it better than me. No one has it better than me. And I'm going to celebrate that fact. I'm going to celebrate in the way that I live my life. Celebrate in the way that I treat my neighbors. Celebrate in the way that I think in my own head, not letting shame and regret rob me of what God has for me today.